This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. If you don't acknowledge, for example, that the statues were part of a purposeful effort to send a message to the African-American community about who was still in charge, notwithstanding the fact that the Confederacy lost the war, then it's hard to get to another place. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. My guest this week is Mitch Landrieu. He is the mayor of New Orleans and the author of the new book, In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Landrieu made headlines over the past couple of years for taking down a series of Confederate statues in New Orleans. Uh, His book is about that, about his political career, about the way race has played out in Louisiana politics. Um, And I'm appreciative that he took the time today to have a, a pretty deep conversation about those issues and others. I think you'll enjoy it. As always, you can send me show feedback at Ezra Klein Show at box.com, ideas for guests, uh, anything you might want to tell me. And you should be checking out our new podcast, Today Explained, which is fantastic. I don't know what more I can tell you to subscribe. So if you have not subscribed, just know that I am thinking of you with disappointment and disapproval. Uh, but with that said, here is Mayor Landrieu. Mayor Landrieu, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Azure. Great to be here. So I'd like to begin with your background in politics. Your father was also mayor of New Orleans. What do you learn growing up the son of a mayor? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I'm one of nine kids. Uh, grew up. Uh, it's a lot of kids. A, well, yeah, it's a lot of kids. My mom my mom had nine children in 11 years. She's a saint and a spectacular woman. Where are you in the birth order? Uh, on the fifth, right in the middle, and kind of been there my entire life, and amazingly, uh, in almost everything that I do. But I grew, you know, I grew up in the deep south, grew up in the city of New Orleans, born and raised uh, in a neighborhood that, from my perspective, was a, the first integrated neighborhood in the city of New Orleans. Although later I learned that my white friends who I went to high school with thought I lived in a black neighborhood. So that was interesting to me uh, and grew up just like everybody else does. My mom and dad didn't really have two nickels to rub together. My dad, you know, grew up in a house that was about 18 feet wide and 60 feet long, and he found his way to uh, Jesuit High School and then Loyola University in New Orleans where he met my mother who incidentally wanted, you know, to to become a nun. Now, I never really asked him the story about how he got her out of the convent. I thought I'd leave that for another day. But, <laughs> but if, they, if, you, they, if you want to write these books, you got to you gotta change those instincts, you gotta, Mayor. You got I know. I'm sorry. I can tell all about my mom and daddy. But, you know, over a period of time, you know, a very short period of time, they had a lot of kids, and we grew up in a in a uh, neighborhood right in the middle of the city of New Orleans and did the things that everybody else did. My dad 
uh, found his way from law school to the JAG Corps. He was a uh, that's how he got through law school and then was served in the Pentagon. And then they came back home and, and started to make a life for themselves. And it just so happened to be that that occurred in in the Deep South when all of the issues of segregation were really, you know, really beginning to manifest themselves. And one of the first things he did when he was a young legislator, when I actually was in utero, was voted against Governor Davis's segregation package uh, and had his life threatened. And they said that he was done, that he was finished, that he would never, you know, amount to anything in his life. And of course, you know, history wrote a different story about the fact that he later became a councilman at large, then the mayor of um, New Orleans, and then the secretary of housing and urban development. And so my entire life was lived through the prism of, you know, growing up in the Deep South during those very, very difficult times. And of course, I later went on to run for state representative myself, and then lieutenant governor, and then mayor of the city. There's something you say offhandedly in the book uh, where you're talking about Mayor Nagin, who preceded you, and Donald Trump and others, and you say, government is not a business. And the idea of running government as a business, while it's a great line for TV spots, it does not work as a political reality. And and that struck me as interesting from somebody whose family has been in the business of politics. So, so what do people from the outside miss about the skills that you need to govern an elected office well? Well, as you know, when I became mayor of the city of New Orleans, the city was falling off of a cliff. I mean, we had suffered through Katrina, through Rita, through Ike, through Gustav, through the National Recession, the BP oil spill. I mean, we were about as down as you possibly could get. And of course, in order to turn that city around, you have to be very, very practical, but you kind of have to know what the the body uh, of, of work is that you're trying to accomplish. And a lot of times people just use shorthand, run government like a business. And I think what they what they intend to communicate is that government needs to be run. It needs to be more effective. It needs to be uh, – they have to be more clearer strategies. It has to be more entrepreneurial. It has to be faster. It has to do a lot of things better. That's clearly true. Uh, no mayor in America who uh, – his job it is is to run that major mechanism doesn't want um, their city to be able to provide what it is that the citizens need. However, people get really confused when they think, well, that's not really what I meant uh, I really want government to turn a profit because essentially what government does is it, it really has to govern to the common good. And so you have to find the balance of both. And most mayors in America, Republican and Democrat, are just about making government work better for the people and and fighting against its natural tendency, which is to gl- grow, become sc- sclerotic, and then get stuck. And sometimes if you don't understand the nature of what you're doing – then you can't really accomplish what it is that that you need because it's a lot different than returning value to the shareholder in a private business or to turning a profit because there are other things that you have to think about. I always take as the core of that claim when people say, I want to see government run like a business. What, what, What I think they're often saying is, I don't like politics. I don't like politicians. I want something different than how this feels. And and as somebody who is in politics, whose family has been in politics, why do you think Americans don't like politicians? Why isn't working in politics seen as a more noble pursuit? Unfortunately, I I really don't think that politics is a whole lot different from business right now. I I think if you tested whether Americans trusted any institution, the church, businesses, politics, people say that we generally have not been handling – ourselves well as a country. Politicians take an extra weapon because we're in places of public trust. And 
I think that it depends on how you ask them the question. If you ask them about Congress, they may have a different opinion about what they think about their particular congressman. Or if you ask them about Congress, they have a completely different view than than what their mayor is. What they're saying is that they want the institutions to do what they're supposed to do, and they want to make sure that leaders are leading in a way that makes sense, and they all want to be included. Um, it's clear, you know, when I when I became mayor of the city of New Orleans, I had to take some really dramatic action, and in partnership with the city council and the civic community, we did some very very hard things. We had to fill a hundred million dollar hole in a basically a five hundred million dollar budget. I mean, that's twenty twenty two percent. You have to cut. Nobody really ever really has to do that. We had to fight, you know, to to re uh, finance and fix the pension systems. We had to cut a lot of services that were really important. But then at the same time, we had to say to ourselves, well, that's not – we can't stay there forever. We've got to grow back. And so we cut, we reorganized, we invested, and we ran the entity in a non-ideological way. In other words, we didn't get in the same kind of fights that America seem, sees Congress getting in because we really worked hard to find common ground and then to find a real solution to whatever the problem was, more like a problem-solving exercise rather than a debate about who's right or who's wrong about you know whatever issues or – you know, tweaking people's emotions for the day. You said something interesting in there, which is you said that that something people want is to be included. And I'm I'm working this out as I talk to you. So if it, if it comes out wrong, forgive me. But I'm fascinated by the drop in confidence across institutions. And and one thing I see when I look at that polling is that the more open the institution has become, the more people actually are included in the institution's workings, things like Congress, the presidency, uh, you know, increasingly all, all facets of American life have become a lot more transparent, the more it's dropped. And then the more cloistered it is, the Supreme Court, the army, the more it just sort of works on the side on its own, the more it has sustained trust. There seems to me to be a tension in American life right now where we often want the institutions that govern us, that help shape the world we're part of to be more open to us. But when we get into them, we don't like it that much. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't like watching sausage being made. Nobody's going to like this answer because we are in a time when instant gratification is available to us by the nanosecond. But things take a long time. And I, I've said many, many times because I, I don't have a definitive answer. And I think that we don't know exactly what it is that we're going through. I think that we should recognize that we're actually going through something big. And whether or not this is just a, a diversion or whether or not it's a pathway to another place, we're not going to know for a couple of years. One thing that you can say is that the country is uncomfortable with itself right now. And we have to figure out why. Uh, but the first thing to notice is that we are. And notwithstanding the the spinning of the head with the daily tweet on the federal level as it relates to the president. I think this last election, if it didn't show us anything, is that the country uh, and many people in the country feel alienated and forgotten and not seen. And that cuts across racial lines. So I speak about this in the book about how we really have to confront the truth. And this is not so that you can just say, well, so-and-so was a liar or, or not, but just really to figure out what the reality is about what our history was and where we need to go. There is firm ground that we can stand on. And the truth of the matter is that even though the national press you know, points out all of our differences every day on the ground where people live, that is you know, at their houses and their cars, at the playgrounds, at their churches and the restaurants that we go to, 
in the in the kind of cultural events that we attend where white people and black people and Hispanic people and people from all over the place are sitting there looking at something on the stage. There's a lot of sharing that goes on in America every day. And what you have to do is when you recognize that you're in an uneasy place, speak about it and talk about it in a civil way and, and get back to that sense of common purpose. And you have to do that purposefully and intentionally. Uh, and I just think we have to do more of that. And I think we have to recognize that the moment we're in calls for more of that than we've had in the past. Let me ask you about the idea that that we're in an uneasy place. Your book is talking about, in, in, in large part, Confederate monuments, hearkening back to, to the Civil War. Your book is talking about a time when David Duke, uh, the former Klan leader, was a elected representative in Louisiana. Compared to where our country has been, even in, in its recent past, is this really such an uncomfortable, uneasy place? Well, it shouldn't be. But obviously, the conversation that we had about the monuments was more uncomfortable than I expected it to be. When the murders took place at Mother Emmanuel, that moment laid on top of the last, I mean, the two or three years of events that happened before that with Ferguson and the killing of the police officers in Dallas and then the mass shootings that we had in, in my mind should have been a another, and I say another because we have so many of them, clarifying moment for the country about the pathway that we've taken on race. Now, John Lewis, who is my hero, speaks to this forcefully and pushes back against people who say we haven't made any progress by he himself saying, I am, I am manifest uh, example of how far we have come while still recognizing that we're not where we are. I think everybody in the country will agree that in the last couple of years, we've kind of backed up on the issue of race and gone to our corners. And of course, the issue of the statues of the monuments, which I write about in the book, was just one of many, many, many things that have been talked about since the Civil War, Reconstruction, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Civil Rights Movement. It's just another step towards us forming this aspirational, more perfect union. Out of many, we are one. And the question we have to ask ourselves is not, are we perfect? But are we moving towards that aspiration or are we moving away from it? I would say today, right now, I mean, writ specifically in the moment that we're in, we're not moving to that. We're moving away from it. We're challenging the, 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 the guardrails of democracy. And I, and I speak forcefully to this in the book that there's a lot of elasticity in our national conversation against, around what's conservative and what's liberal you know, what's progressive and what's not, what's forward thinking and what's not. But one thing that we should be absolutely certain about is that white supremacy has no place in the ethos of American democracy. And we need to call that out when we see it, which is why I told the story about David Duke, to just make the point again that you can never take freedom or democracy for granted. You can't take the future of the country for granted. You actually have to show up. You got to vote. You have to participate in this civic discussion. You have to make your voice known. And you don't have to be an elected official to do that. Let's talk a little bit about David Duke. I think that most listeners of my show will, if they know who David Duke is, know him as a former Ku Klux Klan grand wizard who now does some tweeting about how much he likes Donald Trump. Tell me a bit about David Duke in Louisiana politics. I, I was elected in 1988 when I was 28 years old to the Louisiana legislature. I was elected with a reform governor. At the time, President Clinton was still governor of Arkansas, and Governor Ray Mabus, who later became Secretary of Neighbor of the Navy, was the uh, governor of Mississippi. These three young individuals, all of whom wanted to be president, uh, were part of what 
people were beginning to envision as the new South, which was a South that was going to shed the burden of race, uh, become an economic powerhouse, make sure that the doors of the South were open for everybody. Of course, only one of them went on to become president. And then sometime thereafter, uh, David Duke, who had before really been a, an obscure figure, but nevertheless the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, actually ran for a seat in the Louisiana legislature and amazingly won. And all of a sudden, the national media came into uh, the state of Louisiana and began to cover David Duke, who at the time was very telegenic, uh, very smart, very easy with uh, his language, uh, was speaking in benign tones, but otherwise communicating very clearly. And if you you know dig deeply enough into what he talks about is that the nation should be a nation of white supremacy. He's unabashed about that. But David Duke became a thing in Louisiana when people were hurting and when people turned in on themselves, which sounds a lot like today, and then decided that he was going to run uh, both for governor and for the United States Senate. And in that travail, he, he got to be a fairly significant force. And when he ran against Senator J. Bennett Johnston, he got two out of every three white votes in the state of Louisiana. Now, that's a terrifying thought for those of us that are opposed to what David Duke stands for. But a flag or a flare for how when people are feeling hurt or they're feeling alienated or left out, they will follow a demagogue who is trying to take them away from where the ethos of America ought to be, which is why I talk a lot about when I was a young kid, my visit to Auschwitz and not just assuming that we can't ever repeat those atrocities that occurred throughout the world, throughout history. They found a way to get there. But you got to, when David Duke shows up, the bigger story of the book is you have to confront that and you have to talk about it. And of course, I was heartened after Charlottesville when they had uh, that terrible demonstration. A number of conservative Republican elected officials stood up and confronted the president when he engaged in what I considered to be false equivocation. Now, there's a lot of room to agree with the president or disagree with the president on lots of different issues, on trade, et cetera, et cetera. But there can be no, in my opinion, light between anybody on the issue of white nationalism and white supremacy and what that brought us as a country. And we need to put that down whenever it rears its head. I want to talk about how David Duke campaigned and and, and, and how this kind of white supremacy presents itself or doesn't in the public sphere. So something you say in your book is that when David Duke was actually on the trail, instead of coming out and saying, we should have a revival of the Ku Klux Klan or, you know, wearing a swastika on his arm. He talked about welfare abuse and affirmative action and minority set-asides. Uh, he talked about, you know, criticized culture in African-American communities and children being born out of wedlock. And he spoke about things that could be interpreted racially and I think properly should have been. But you could also give it the other interpretation. And... There's a way in which that kind of dog whistle politics is very hard to call out because then you say, you know, this guy's a white supremacist and people say, no, you're, you're, you're being divisive. You're running the race card here. So how do you, how did you, in fact, to, to talk about it in real terms, respond to David Duke inside the legislature as you're trying to remind people what he is, even as he's saying he's something different? Well, it's an excellent question because sometimes they look exactly the same and depending on whose mouth it's coming out of. And it's very hard to tell another human being's motives, but you need to look at, at their actions. And it is also clear that you can speak in ways where you're sending a message to people, but you're not really saying it overtly. Now, not everybody 
that is in the audience that listens to David Duke that might agree with his position, for example, on taxes uh, or affirmative action or how you reorganize welfare reform is necessarily a racist. But there were clearly some people who were hearing the message that he in, in total was intending to deliver, which is one of all of these things lead to the same place, which is one of white supremacy and nationalism. And then all you need to do is look at Duke's writings and his self-avowed discussion about this to speak about why he was saying what he was saying and then begin, begin to think through it. So the one thing you have to do is you have to be aware of it. You have to uh, think about where the person is who's speaking has coming from and what they really intend because it tends to look the same sometimes but not all of the time. And then finally, as you get in, into the issue of uh, institutional racism, you have to acknowledge actually that it exists. And, and if you don't acknowledge that it exists, if you don't acknowledge, for example, that the statues were part of a purposeful effort to send a message to the African-American community about who was still in charge, notwithstanding the fact that, that the Confederacy lost the war, then it's hard to get to another place. So one of the things I wanted to speak to clearly in the book, as particularly a white Southerner who was the mayor of a major American city that was part of a continuous government that goes all the way back to 1718, is that we formally acknowledge what is historically true and not controvertible, which was that the Confederacy was fought to destroy the United States of America, not for a noble cause, but to destroy our country over the cause of slavery. And so the African-American community can justly say, how do we actually move forward? How can I trust that you have my best interests as hard as an American citizen if you can't acknowledge probably the worst thing that the United States, you know, or the people of the United States have done as a country? Because it's hard. You have to say, I'm sorry. And then somebody's got to say, I forgive you. That's the, like the essence of reconciliation. You have to want to reconcile. You have to want to be one country. We say that out of many, we are one. We say that we aspire to be a more perfect union. And the questions that we have to ask ourselves, like you have to ask yourself as a person who makes a lot of mistakes is, you know, but am I moving in the right direction? Of course, we all make mistakes. Of course, we didn't see something that we should have seen. But am I open to each other? You have to believe that diversity is a strength. If you don't believe that, then you know, you're going to go in another direction. You have to believe that we're all in it together or you believe that I'm stronger than you and, and I've got it now so you can't have it like it's a zero-sum game. That's not really never who we've been as a country, but it comes out of the ethos of a lot of things that happened in our past and you have to just speak to them and acknowledge them. So a so, couple things here. So I want to put a pin in the idea of one, whether or not we want to reconcile and two, whether or not it's who we've been as a country because I think those are those are important questions for for this period. But, but I want to hold for another minute on Duke, uh, something that that I find difficult in this, and it goes to, to something you brought up around motivations, is how do you decide around some of these dog whistle approaches to politics when something you're looking at is a legitimate policy point? You're just having a conversation about affirmative action or you're just having a conversation about, uh, you know, usages of social insurance programs, or you're looking at coded racism. Huh. And is that even a, a distinction worth making? Is that even something people well, should be it, trying to figure out? It is definitely a distinction worth making, and it is particularly difficult and painful because a lot of times it looks the same. So, for example, there are many uh, elected officials who are not racist, who who would, who would proclaim themselves to be conservative, uh, that believe in small government, that lead to certain prescriptions for how to get where it is that they want to go that involve reforming welfare or things of that nature. Um, and, and as I said, it's hard to look into a person's heart. But then again, there are people like David Duke. 
And again, you listen to how what people say, how they act, and what they've written about. As it relates to him and many other people, they are self-avowed white nationalists. And so that's important to know uh, and to not let them hide, you know, in the cloak of other people who are just conservative who are not. And one of the ways you do that is just by talking to him. I spoke to David Duke, asked him what he thought. And, uh, you know, in the second hour of the conversation, it, it got to be clear to me that his intent was, and he's self-avowed about this, is that he doesn't believe that diversity is a strength. He actually believes that white people are superior to black people. He thinks that we ought to live in different countries. That's when you have to say, okay, you can't. You can. I'm not going to give you an, a room to run. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to defend what I think is the best thing about the United States of America. And, of course, that's what we did, white legislators and black legislators, when David Duke you know, began to, to talk. We confronted him, and we dealt with it. And eventually the people of Louisiana – began to see that. And of course, he lost both of the races that he ran. So to to the second thing that you alluded to, is this really who we are as a people or who we were? Well, we're not all the same thing all the time throughout all of history. We have been a combination of both. And on we've had some good years and we've had some bad years. Um, you, you, it's, it's interesting to note the tendencies, though, and then ask yourself as a general matter, are we as a country moving in the right direction or not? So speaking of, uh, of the direction we're moving, you write, David Duke's demagoguery stands like a dress rehearsal for the rise of Donald Trump. Unpack that a bit for me. Well, I was I, – I, again, that wasn't a judgment. It was an assessment. And as you may recall, during the presidential race, the president was asked if he knew anything about David Duke. He said that he didn't, but of course he did. Um, after Charlottesville, he made a false statement about whether the actions of the – folks were, were equal or, or were different, and he didn't. And, you know, of course, not everybody that supports President Trump is a racist, but clearly a lot of people supported Donald Trump for that reason. Some people did. And that, that group of people, you know, that are hanging on to this sense that somehow, you know, America, to make America great again, you have to make America white again, which is a, a strain that we see not just in the United States of America, but you see this around the world right now. You see this this rise of nationalism um, and this sense that somehow white people are losing, you know, their history or what they were as though we're, we're a monolithic group, as though like white is like a, a, a pure thing as opposed to we're all the accumulation of all of the people who came before us and that we're all part of cross-cultural, you know, uh, communication. Uh, is is just not correct. And I think that on that particular issue, you have to separate that for what it is and say that's outside of the bounds or the rails of what makes us great as a nation. It's fascinating what you say about white. Uh, you know, my I'm Jewish. Um, my family's Ashkenazi Jewish. And my father is an immigrant from Brazil. Yeah. Where's your mama from? Uh, my mom's from Newark. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, and the idea, <laughs> I mean, this is, I, I do not have a white family for right. much of the 20th century. Correct. But then today, I'm white. Correct. It's funny how well, that which, happens. Which goes, well, <laughs> let me say this, which goes to the issue of, of how people see you and how you really are. Very much. So, for example, in my neighborhood, my neighborhood was the first integrated neighborhood. Well, what did that mean to have an integrated neighborhood? Well, it generally meant that one person of color moved into your neighborhood. So, all of a sudden, it's not a white neighborhood with one person. It's an integrated neighborhood. Now, if two African-Americans move into your neighborhood, evidently, if you have white friends, you live in a black neighborhood. Well, why? All, we, so, so it was really curious to me when I was a kid. I was living – I lived in a great neighborhood. My friends were white and black. We played in the street all the time. Some of my friends who I went to high school with, which was a more predominantly white school, wouldn't come to my neighborhood because I lived in a black neighborhood. Well, I never actually ever thought about my neighborhood 
in that way. What I thought about was where are my friends? Who am I playing basketball with today? Who am I playing football with? You know, who am I riding my bike with today? So how people see you and how you are different. My heritage, for example, um, Italian, German, English, French, in, in my history, probably some African-American blood on my great-great-grandmother's side, but I'm blonde-haired and blue-eyed. If you saw me, you say, well, you know, that's a white guy. Well, okay, I, I guess I am. I mean, clearly, that's the way I look, but my history is much more complicated. I come from a lot of different countries. I come from a lot of different cultures. So when people describe themselves, white people, like, oh, our heritage is being taken from us, the, 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 it's actually the exact opposite, which is, no, we have so much more to gain from each other when we share our cultures. And of course, the city of New Orleans, the city of that has my undying love, the city that, that, that formed me, is a multicultural cauldron, you know, that produced the best food in the world and produced the greatest music in the world. Jazz itself is a, is a musical manifestation of different cultures melding, not clashing, but melding into a new thing that the world has never seen. And so I guess this, the, what I write about in the book is how much we've lost by seeing the world as a zero-sum game or according to race by creating an unwelcoming environment and forcing 5 million people to flee the South. Now think about that for a minute. How many, how many uh, artists and poets and doctors and lawyers and scientists uh, and engineers left the space that, that, that we are in right now and as a consequence, we did not get the benefit of the great things that they bring to us and, and how that was spread across the entire country. It's called the diaspora. How much did we actually lose? So I write about that in the book because people think that, you know, you're just talking about how I help defend somebody else's rights. Well, that's true, but I was also defending my own right to have access to and be available to the gifts that God gave all of those other people that felt that they had to leave because this wasn't their place. And Wentworth Marcellus told me this very specifically when I was talking to him about the monuments. He said, you know, Louis Armstrong left here because of that. And I have had other great leaders say to me, I won't go there because of that. And so if once, once somebody tells you that, you don't go, oh, you're an idiot. Oh, no, that's not true. You go, okay, well, wait, I, let me think about that for a minute. And how much have I lost in this conversation that we've been having with each other over the past 150 years? And how much of my kids going to lose because of that? And so it just is an acknowledgement. And one of the things I write about in the book that, you know, you learn over time because all of us make a lot of mistakes is you have, it's not so hard to say, I'm sorry. And it's not so hard to say, I forgive you. Although evidently it really is because it's hard to move past it, stuff unless you get there. It is when you're afraid though. Yeah. It no is, question. it is hard to say, I'm sorry when you're afraid of what saying I'm sorry will mean, right? When saying well, I'm I sorry might mean that you have to do something to make up for what you've done. When saying I'm sorry might mean that you have to allow people to, 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 to step forward when you wanted that for yourself. That, that to me, I, I think sometimes we talk about this conversation as if nobody's got anything to lose. But, you know, I, I don't think it's an accident that Donald Trump follows the first African-American president. And, you know, if you're somebody who, even if you don't see yourself as, as in any way racist, you just have a certain amount of there's a way things have been and you liked it. And, you know, now things look different and you feel anxious and you're being told to say sorry for stuff that you don't even think you've done. That makes you afraid. Well, that, that's a, those are all excellent points, and I, I agree with all of them. But again, the, in the, the speech that I gave, it, it's not a speech that condemns. It's a speech that invites people to think about these very issues. Clearly, uh, a lot of people in America, for a lot of different reasons, 
feel alienated and not connected as a community, whether or not this is the convergence of technology uh, or, or what it might be. This is the moment where I don't think we really know, but we really feel something's not right. And, uh, and you know, if you've – Cheryl and I have five children. When you have a baby and the baby starts to cry, they're crying for a reason. You know, if, if a child is, looks anxious, they look anxious for a reason. And so one of the things that occurred in this election was that clearly, amongst many other things, white working class people raised up and said, I don't feel like you see me. I don't feel like you can hear me, and I have real problems, and they absolutely do. And it was a mistake for the Democratic Party to not be aware of that and to forget about that, or really anybody. You know, anybody in America that's hurting, that is anxious. But the next thing is important, which is how do you act out on that? What actually do you do? And really, what is the positive way going forward? So that's part A. Part B is on the issue of race. I have said this many times, just it may not be the right thing, but you say, I can't relitigate whose fault it was. Clearly, nobody living today had any responsibility for slavery. Now, all of us have probably had, at least in the South, some ancestors that were involved in that and feel some sense of unnecessary guilt about our connection to that. Or we have had ancestors that actually fought in the Civil War and think somehow by making the the acknowledgement that the Civil War was fought for the wrong reason, that somehow they died in vain. And I don't think we have to go there. I think we can recognize that the Civil War was a huge tragedy of epic proportions for the country. And we don't have to assume any fault for anything that happened in the past. I do think, however, that we all have to assume responsibility going forward about how to reconcile and fix that. So we should acknowledge people's anxiety and acknowledge people's pain and and also give room for the possibility that not everybody that is against taking the statues down is a racist. They The statues, evident, I found this out, were just kind of a landmark for people, a modern-day landmarks where they stood with their mother or father when they watched the Mardi Gras parade. And when they see it coming down, it's like watching an old building coming down, and they don't fully appreciate and understand the context of why they were put up or how what impact they had on other people. But when called to do so, basically said, oh, gosh, I didn't really realize – I'm sorry about that. And then everybody says, great, let's think if we see if we can do something else. Because as I say in the speech and in the book, there is a difference between remembrance of our history and reverence of it and putting it in its right context. And of course, one of the great things about America is we recreate ourselves every day and we get better every day and we fix what was broken and we make straight what was crooked and we make right what was wrong. That's part of what we do and why we're such a great country. And there's no reason why we shouldn't continue to do it by confronting what the reality is about who we are and what we've been. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. You have an interesting story about how you began thinking about the statues in this way, which is you had a a lunch or a coffee, some kind of meeting with the jazz player, Wynton Marsalis. And, And I'd like you to tell that story because one thing that was striking to me in that was that it wasn't something that was visible to you in a very clear way before that moment. And I'm curious for how that that absence of visibility looks to you in retrospect. Well, no, listen, as I said, you know, I just talked a little bit about how I grew up in a really diverse community. And even I didn't appreciate, you know, what the presence of those monuments did to who my friends were. Now, yes, when I talked to Wenton a couple years ago, I was the mayor of a major American city talking to maybe the greatest musician of our time, who's also a historian. But really, it was just Mitch talking to Wenton, his friend who he grew up with in the context of how we are going to help our city that we love so much rebuild. It wasn't like we were going to try to create a movement or a moment. And Winton just very politely said to me, because I was asking him to help me curate the 300th anniversary of our wonderful city, which is happening in a couple of weeks. We started working on this in 2014. And I'd asked William, I mean, Winton to help me curate it, you know, and, and to think through what we were going to do in the city to celebrate it, which we've done miraculously and wonderfully for the last couple of years. And he said to me just very plaintively, he said, well, you know, why are you thinking about rebuilding the city? And by the way, we had built a new airport. We've built a new riverfront. We've built a whole bunch of new schools. We've done a whole bunch of magnificent things with the help of the American taxpayer. So thank you very much, everybody. You're welcome. He said to me, you ought to think about, you know, taking those monuments down. And my first response to him was, well, why? And he says to me, do you know why they're there and who put them up? and why they were put up. And he said, did you realize that Louis Armstrong left because of those? And my answer to all of those was no. I hadn't really thought about it. So he said something very lovingly to me. He didn't condemn me. He didn't judge me. He said, well, you should learn about it and you should think about it. And then he said, as a friend would challenge another friend, will you do that? And of course I said, well, of course I will. My initial reaction, though, was a politician's reaction, which is, oh, hell, that's going to be a massive fight. Why would I want to do that? But as you know, I promised him, I thought about it, and I really went and looked at the research. And then when I found out when they were put up, why they were put up, intentionally to send a message to the African-American community that they were less than and not welcome here in a city that had always prided itself on multiculturalism, in a city that was now 60 percent African-American, it like hits you like a thunderbolt that they don't need to be there. That's not a reflection of who the city of New Orleans was, especially a city that's getting ready to celebrate its 300th anniversary and fixing it. And so that's what kind of spurred me into, I've really now got to think about what the answer to those questions are and what I should do about them. Could you give me a, a, a bit of that history? And, and I'd like you to put it in two parts. One is a bit of the history of New Orleans and, and the slave trade in the Civil War, uh, which I recognize is a big question, but then a bit of the history of, 
of where the statues come from? What is the context in which they are erected? Well, again, it's, I'm glad you asked that question because it's really a, what's one of the things I like about the book, if I might say so, is that it's a it's a good thing for parents to give to their kids to talk about and for parents themselves to learn what the real history is. Because as my own mother said to me, she said, I didn't, I didn't know any of that. They didn't teach me about that in school. And James Lowen, who's one of the great writers, writes a lot of books about how we haven't told our true history, which is why the truth is important and there is objective truth and there's a real history to be told in context so that we can all be better. But essentially, everybody knows about the Civil War. Uh, The Confederacy uh, was never a formal governmental entity. It fought a war against, to, to split the country, to destroy the United States of America. And the historical you know, lie was that it was fought over economics, not over slavery. It was fought to preserve the institution of slavery. I don't think that that's a debatable historic fact anymore. I think that's settled. But it need, un- unfortunately needed to be said, which is one of the reasons why I gave the speech and, and wrote the book. And it's sad that that fact has to be respoken. But essentially what happened is this, as you know, the Confederacy lost the war. Slavery was supposedly was abolished. And then everything was supposed to be all right, just like everything was supposed to be all right after the Brown versus Board of Education passed, or everything was supposed to be all right after Plessy versus Ferguson, or everything was supposed to be all right after the first African-American president you know, served. But that is not what happened. What happened was the individuals that, that uh, were in favor of the Confederacy and against the United States of America, notwithstanding the fact that they lost the war, decided that many, many, many years later, they wanted to tell the story of the lost cause. This is their term, not mine. These are the historian's terms. And they wanted to erect statues uh, in honor of the people that fought for the lost cause of the Confederacy, which was supposedly a noble cause. And they erected many, many years after the Civil War. The first wave happened between 1890. The Civil War ended in 1865. But in 1890 through like 1912 to 1920, and then there was an abeyance. And then many, many years later, actually in the 50s, these individuals just went around putting these monuments to these Confederate soldiers up. Now, I just would ask anybody a simple question. Does anybody know of any other statues to reverence people who actually lost something rather than won something, (laughs) especially as it relates to the United States of America? I mean, on the mall – of, of our capital, do you see any monuments to anybody from England who lost the war, the war, the revolutionary war that we fought? Of course you didn't. And so there's no other example of this. And when you go back and actually read the history, it's called the cult of the lost cause. And it's purposefully stated that they were put up to send a message about who was really still in control. And of course, that message was received with with great poignancy and pain by people like Wenton when he was a little boy or Terrence Blanchard, another great trumpeter who said to me, I passed by the statute of PGD Beauregard every day on my way to high school, by the way, the name of which was John F. Kennedy High School. And every day I walked by that statue, it gave me pain. And when that statue came down, Terrence told me he felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off his shoulders. Now, why? This is just kind of me talking. Now, once we know that, why would we then insist that they stay there? Why, why would we then insist that, you know, oh, that's part of our history so we can't ever move it as though nothing ever gets moved in this country. Things get moved every day. Things get recreated every day. You don't change history because you move things, but you do change it by saying, well, I'm not going to revere something anymore, but I certainly will remember it so as never to repeat it, but not to honor it because it was the wrong thing to do. 
And so that is the context of what we were doing in New Orleans at the time while, as everybody remembers, we were rebuilding from the total devastation from Katrina. So when that issue confronts you as a mayor and you look at that physical thing, you say that doesn't ever reflect who we were. And by the way, the city of New Orleans itself, which is a multicultural mecca, has been since 1718, was never a Confederate town. And Robert E. Lee really never – he may have been there once, but I don't – that's still arguable historically whether he actually stepped foot in town. So in the city of New Orleans, in our most revered space, we've got a guy who's never been there that fought for a cause that we didn't believe in in a way that demeans – the majority of the citizens who are there. That just seems not right to me. So let me turn the question you just asked on yourself, though. So you went through this process, and as you did, a lot of people came to you, including your father, and said, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this. Um, your father for, for reasons <laughs> of the politics of it, but others for reasons because they, they, well, they didn't want you to do it. Well, he was my daddy, and he knew it was going to hurt. Yeah. So he said, you know, but, I, but, I, but in, the book, in the book, one of the things I do say is that I suspect, and I think rightly so, and I told him this the other day, that he, he, if he went in my shoes, he would have done the same thing. And he chuckled and said, yeah, probably right. But so let me ask you, when though, when people came to you and said, hey, don't do this, please don't do this. And some of them, I assume, were people you respected. Some of them were people in the community who who did good in your eyes. What were the arguments that you found the most persuasive, that you found the most textured? What 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 is the version of this? Because I think it's easy to listen to, to our conversation on this. And, and if yeah. you're not steeped in this, to say... It's just evil. The idea that you would have a statue of Robert E. Lee in a majority African-American city, there's just an evilness to that. But that's well, not how people see it no, when they're defending it, it, it. It's much more nuanced. And by the way, I was trained as a lawyer, so I, I can argue the other side, I think, with, with integrity. There are there – are, but, so, but let, me, let me just state the clear fact so that everybody knows where I am. There are clearly a number of people in this country who have nothing to do with New Orleans that think they own – property in New Orleans and can tell the people of the New Orleans what to do and that these statues are a reflection of what they believe the country to be. I think they are completely and totally wrong and that their intentions for putting the statue up and their intentions for keeping it in there are not good. Now, having said that, not everybody that was opposed to taking these statues down fit in that category or think about it from what you would call an evil racist position, that there were a lot of people of goodwill who for many reasons say, I think that they ought to stay. So let me give you the, uh, uh, some examples of what they were. First of all, people who have ancestors that fought and died in the Civil War feel as though um, you demean the sacrifice that they believe that their ancestors made for what their ancestors believed was a just cause, even though I believe their ancestors were wrong. Or, or they didn't have a, a choice to fight in the war or not fight in the war. And so they somehow thought that, you know, when you take something that even is part of what can, could be considered a memorial is a disrespect. And I certainly understand that and think that that's compelling. But the answer to that is, well, that's better done in a cemetery than on a piece of public space of reverence. You can always remember, you know, what your loved ones did, even if you think what they did was wrong. The second one was really just one of historic preservation. You know, once a piece of marble is put up, it becomes part of the landscape, becomes part of the ethos of the city, and you should never take it down. Well, I reminded people who told me about that, but this monument wasn't put up uh, originally. When the city was originally built, that circle was called Tivoli Circle. It was designed specifically to replicate uh, some other European cities, of course, and if you've been in New Orleans, you know that we're a very European city, and that actually when they put the monuments up, they changed the original history of the city. So the historical argument kind of you know, fell by the wayside. The third one 
It's just one of familiarity. Now, anybody that lives in a small town in the United States of America has seen their landscape change. Small hardware stores and drug stores have yielded to big box stores. Big box stores are now yielding to Amazon. The, the pace of that change is, is dizzying for many of us. Uh, on Canal Street, which is the major thoroughfare, uh, shopping thoroughfare, family-owned stores that we all remember that our mothers and fathers took us to and, and we ate hamburgers and drank chocolate malts, you know, have all gone away. And so some of it is just watching a part of what you used to know, you know, disappear. And then finally, people who have no sense of history at all used to hang around these circles during Mardi Gras and enjoy what our greatest multicultural celebration, Mardi Gras, with their families. And they thought somehow it was going to, you know, impact their memory of um, their, their childhood. And th those were a lot of the reasons. But as I went through all of those things, none of those things rose to the level of maintaining those particular monuments where they were because they could be replaced very easily with something that remembers all of those things, number one. And by the way, we're completely recreating ourselves all of the time. And so that's why I spoke to the issue of there being a difference between reverence and remembrance. Uh, and we're smart enough to know how to do both in a way uh, that creates open, inviting and positive spaces. There's another counter argument I've heard, which comes from a, a different perspective altogether. And, and this argument, it grants the idea that these statues should not have been put up, should not be up, do not represent a good version of our history. But the argument is we've got so much to do as a country. There's so much division already. We've got such deep economic problems. We have deep cultural problems that Picking these questions, it, it, it exacerbates our divisions when you could just worry about raising the minimum wage or trying to make sure everyone gets health care and that the Democratic Party in particular needs to focus on a populist agenda that, that brings people together, that, that creates a cross-racial coalition, not these issues that get classified rightly or wrongly as identity politics. Well, <laughs> of course, we have a lot of things that we have to worry about and think about. Um, these statues are not just stone. Uh, they're not just symbols. I mean, they actually reflect an attitude that's actually produced the need for all of the things that you just talked about. And so when you become aware of something, no matter how big or how small, you could walk away from it. We've walked away from a lot of things. And, and they sit, you know, like uh, festering wounds. And so this was really uh, an effort to begin to heal, not to fight. But sometimes you got to recognize before you, you fix a wound that you actually have one. There's no use letting it sit there and fester, and it festers. Now, the most damning thing that white people told me who were mad at me, many of whom were my friends and who still love me, I hope, was – and they didn't even know what they were saying. They would say, well, I don't know anybody that's offended by those statues, and I would say that's exactly the problem. <laughs> have, do you have any African-American friends? Have you actually asked them in the freedom of them being able to say what they want, people who are not economically tied to you? And so w what would you think if, you know, people said that they were bothered? Clearly, Wenton didn't stand by himself. He's, he, he, there were lots of people that for many, many, many years have tried to do this. And by the way, I'm just one of the very few people over the history of time that have tried to do this. There have been many, many, many people that for many years have been offended by their presence. 
And so that's like just somebody saying, oh, don't be offended. Just ignore that slight and, you know, talk to me about other stuff that you might want to talk to. And by the way, no, you can't have an increase in the minimum wage. No, you can't. You can't have a better education. Oh, and by the way, no, you can't have Medicaid expansion. And by the way, no, I don't recognize that there are inequities in the way that, you know, things are being distributed in this country. And I believe that everybody's had a fair shot. No. And so it, it just gets to be the same kind of excuse that people have had for a very long time. Um, it's not the biggest issue of the day. It's not the most important issue of the day. It doesn't rise to the level of war and peace, or particularly nuclear war with North Korea. But it is one of those many interesting steps that we have to take, unfortunately, painstakingly, to get to a better place in the country. What makes you confident that taking steps like this will get us to a better place in the country? I've been thinking about something you said early in our conversation, which was that we have a period of unsettledness, of discomfort in this country, and that what leaders need to do is walk towards it rather than away from it. Why, given how some of these conversations are playing out, do you think that we will get to a better place by walking towards it rather than just by walking away from it, by pushing our feelings down and, and moving on with our lives? Well, you know, you just know from your day-to-day existence in your relationships that you have you know, with your partner or your spouse or your parents or your brothers and sisters or your kids, that that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It will raise its head, usually at Thanksgiving dinner when everybody's mad at each other <laughs> in some form or fashion. We're like that as a, as, a, as a civic community as well. You have to deal with whatever problem it is you have, big or small, and small problems turn into big problems. That's just generally true, whether you're talking about race or war and peace or whatever you're talking about. The second reason why I'm confident that we will get through it is because I have a lot of faith in people. Essentially, no matter how much we disappoint ourselves, we eventually find our footing, and we will in this country. There's no question about it. And one of the reasons I'm so absolutely, I'm I'm completely convinced about it is because of how in our darkest hour, after Katrina destroyed everything, the city was underwater, how I watched American citizens help the people of New Orleans, how I watch the people of New Orleans put down their differences and find common ground, how, you know, as we like to say, come hella high water, we were going to figure out how to get out of this, how when we're in our darkest moments, we find our best humanity. I'm sure we will do that. The question that continues to trouble me is, why do we have to wait until a catastrophe hits to do that? Why don't we just figure that out on a day-to-day basis, which is one of the reasons why I spoke about David Duke and its relevance to today, so that we can kind of help help each other see and, and guide each other to say, look, let's not get into that moment. We're not there yet, but let's recognize that this last presidential race was a primal scream from the people of America, different races, creeds, and colors cutting across geography, that something doesn't feel right. And I would have to say this, writ large, if you really kind of backed up got about 40,000 feet and looked historically, the United States of America is in a better place today than we have almost ever been in the history of our country. We're economically stronger than anybody in the world. We're militarily stronger. The job creation over the last 80 months has been pretty spectacular. We're not in the worst place that we've been historically, so why are we feeling so agitated with each other? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know, though, that we are, and I think that we have to recognize that, and we have to admit it. We have to think about what that means and how we get out of it and just confront that issue. There's no use us saying, no, we're not in it. I mean, we're in it. Um, We're certainly in it on the federal level. Again, whether or not we're actually experiencing that day-to-day on the streets, at the grocery stores, in the carpool line, at the ballpark, at the barbecue uh, is a different story. 
in the analogy you used, the analogy of, say, a couple going to therapy or, you know, a, a friendship that needs to, to deal with a problem, something that I, I think about that analogy a lot in this context. And something I think about it sometimes is that if you want to go to therapy with your partner, you both have to want to solve the problem. And you both have to, on some level, agree that there's a problem or at least get to a point where you can agree there's a problem. And that is where I worry about the country. I think about President Obama. That's a guy who I think wanted to have these conversations in a way that could broaden the number of folks who felt like they could participate in them. You go back to his race speech in Philadelphia, but you think of how he, he talked about Trayvon Martin trying to say that it could have been him. I think he's somebody who often tried to figure out a way to have these conversations in a way that was inclusive. And the reaction to that in this country was Donald Trump. The reaction to that in this country was a lot of people said, I don't like the fact that there's an African-American guy in the White House telling me about police brutality or telling me about how we should think about race. And that to me has been, when, when I think about the possibilities for calmer politics, that's where I get tripped up because it isn't that I think there's so many politicians on the scene who are rhetorically more gifted or more personally committed to uh, a, a dignified dialogue than Obama was. But 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 the reaction to it was a lot of people said, I don't like this. I want things the way they were. And they literally voted for a guy who personally had a real erratic tendency to him. But 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 his one promise was, I'm going to make things good the way they were before, good for the people who thought they were good before. And that was, I, I think that spoke to something profound in the country that requires reckoning with. I acknowledge what you just said, but I would just say, don't fret. I mean, the story's not finished yet. You don't really know what's going to happen next. You don't know whether or not the country in four years or eight years are going to say, well, that didn't work out so well. Um, and so, and now we learned something about us that didn't feel so good. So can we do something else? I just don't think you know that America is in continual renewal. It's true that where there's ever where there's an action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and people can historically argue that Trump was a response to Obama. Well, Obama was a, a response to Bush, you know, and so you, you you see that playing out over time. You don't know how the how this story is going to end. What you what you can take comfort in is that people are are discerning and they're thoughtful. American people are smart. Um, it's not fair to say that everybody that voted for Donald Trump was a racist. A lot of people voted for him for that. Make America Great Again was a dog whistle. And the again is the part that really just makes people apoplectic about, well, if we were great once, when, when exactly were we great? Well, well, if we were great because we we're a great military power, that's one. But if we were great because we were white and white people controlled everything, that's not such a comfortable place for African-Americans. If you, if you talk to any African-American and you say, I want to go back, they go, well, like, where do you exactly want to go back to? Where was I in that story about where we went back to? Now, as opposed to saying, make America great. And then we've never really had the discussion. If you think about this, it was a brilliant slogan. But like we never really talked in that election or since then about really, really, what really makes us great. Can you be great unless you're good? And so now the Trump presidency is playing itself out. Um, we are generally in chaos. The president likes that. He thinks that's a good governing strategy. I don't think it works so good. I think it makes people uncomfortable. I think every day there's a new thing that we can't think about. We can't stay focused on the future because we're focused on whatever the catastrophe of the day is. And essentially people, whether you agree with him or don't agree with him, will get, I think will tire of that 
and then may want to try something different or something new. And then you don't know what the reaction to that's going to be. It is important because you can't figure that out. You can't see that now. You can only see it. History will kind of look back on that. What you're going to do now that you're in the moment. And I would, you know, just venture this suggestion. One of the things that we learned in New Orleans after Katrina was that it took all of the citizens to to decide that they wanted to do something and that the rebuilding of New Orleans could have never taken place without citizen input, without the civic community, the philanthropic community, the business community engaging. They didn't just leave and say, well, let's just go do whatever the mayor wants to do. And I think that people are going to respond as people responded to the Obama presidency. They'll respond to the Trump presidency. And one of the responses might be that Washington is just, you know, um, completely stuck. And so we're going to start to innovate on the local level. Of course, that's what you see across America in all of the cities. Eighty-five percent of the people in America live in cities. You have some Democratic and Republican mayors who are non-ideologically bent, who are right-thinking, who are just trying to solve everyday problems and getting things done. And I think you may see the private sector stepping up to the plate, and then you may see a whole new thing form. I think that the, both parties, by the way, are having a fight about who they really are and what they should look like, whether they should be old or young, right or left, progressive or conservative. That's what the dynamic of America does all of the time. And unfortunately, we sometimes we get ourselves to the edge on some issues that make us feel uncomfortable. And I think that President Trump is taking us through that. And we don't yet know what the response that's going to be. And one of those cleavages, too, is is, is urban rural. You, you, you talk about what's happening in the cities, the amount of innovation happening in the big cities. Democrats have this remarkable at this point dominance of of America's big cities more or less locked out not entirely but but heavily in, in in rural places and and you're starting to see that I think come out in our politics in strange ways Hillary Clinton the other day she she made this comment that it's true on the merits but but I think is also a lot of people took offense to it. She said, I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward. And his whole campaign, Trump's campaign, Make America Great Again, it's looking backwards. And, and I wonder what you think about that that urban-rural divide where you're having a lot of the growth happening in America in the cities. You're having a lot of the diversity happening in America in the cities. And a lot of people in rural America, which is very politically powerful, look at that and feel like they're getting left behind. Well, the statement that, that Hillary Clinton made the other day was half right and it was half really wrong. And it's an important thing to, to, to think through. I think that when you're in Washington, D.C., uh, and you're not really looking – you're not in cities, in rural areas, in the suburbs, you see it as either or. Uh, from my perspective, and I can just use the city of New Orleans as an example, we are completely tied and connected to the people in rural Louisiana because they provide the goods – that actually create the businesses, and we provide, you know, resource for them to continue to do what they do. So the rice farmer in North Louisiana is critically important to the world-renowned gumbo that's served at one of the great restaurants in the city of New Orleans. The fishermen that are working uh, in the parishes, we have parishes, everybody else has counties, you know, on the Gulf of Mexico are essential to the truckers that, that, that move the goods from uh, the water onto the table. The same thing is true about the hotels. Same thing is true about the businesses. People who are from the suburbs and the rural areas come into the city of New Orleans all the time, and there actually is a symbiotic relationship. So all of a sudden, although that's manifests itself politically, reality on the ground is that we're interdependent, and we all have to see each other and see each other's value. Now, another thing that's clearly happening 
in rural America. And, you know, I, I alluded to this earlier, and it's about another iteration is about to happen because of technology and Amazon when you're going to see all of the malls in America starting to close that, that help prop up suburbia. New economic models are changing the way people live, and there's great uh, disconnection and alienation. And this has happened in, in other times over history when people move. Now, one of the demographic trends that is occurring that I don't think is going to reverse itself in the next 10 to 15 years is the exact opposite of what happened in the late 50s. What happened in the 50s is people moved out of cities into the suburbs and in some instances, rural areas. That trend is reversing itself. And most people are moving into cities, which is why cities have to organize themselves and get ready for new and crazy things that are really hard to imagine, like automated vehicles or artificial intelligence. And what does all of this mean? And there's a lot of discussion and dissension about it. But in rural areas, you know this, in every main street, in every small town, in a county or a parish, there used to be a family drugstore. There used to be a family hardware store. There used to be uh, you know, wanted diners. There used to be a main street where everybody met. Now, because of the economy, those things are now Walmart. You know, they're, they're gen and those things are upending. And on top of that, because of a whole bunch of reasons that we could argue about, it could be trade or technology, jobs that we used to have are not jobs that are there anymore. And so people feel alienated. And I just think that we have to, we, especially Democrats, and I will speak politically here, have to have to recognize that in the last election that it was made clear to us that we lost what used to be uh, one of the bread and butter constituencies of the Democratic Party and that we, we need to hear clearly from people, white working class people, that we feel left out and not assume that um, if, if we're going to be the Big Ten Party that we can leave them out as well. If we're going to be the Big Ten Party, everybody's got to have a chance to be part of it. And at the end of the day, although party is important in America, it is certainly not the only thing. And that being ideologically bent is never going to get you to a place where you can find common ground with people that think differently from you or that work in another party who are well-intentioned and who are smart and every bit as patriotic as, as we are. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. 
That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This strikes me as a thing that the the Democratic Party, though, is struggling with. You gave a, a a speech at the Gridiron Club the other night, uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess now, which is for for po- folks who don't know, it's a it's a big political event where where rising and nationally known politicians come and make jokes because uh, nothing politicians are better at than making jokes. But you had a good, I thought, riff, and you said. I'm a Democrat from the South and it's lonely. And you said that for Nancy Pelosi, the South is San Jose, speaking of San Jose, California. Now, it's something I've been noticing that a lot of Democrats running for office, they're, you know, like Connor Lamb in uh, in, in Pennsylvania. They're not even saying they're going to vote for Pelosi. They're saying they won't vote for Pelosi for speaker if Democrats take the House. So do Democrats have a leadership problem here? Do they have a leadership that is not making people like you and Lamb and others comfortable? No, well, first of all, you have to put this the whole story in context. First of all, I have no idea why they invited me, and I was praying that I was going to be funny. Um, but uh, that gridiron show is designed to kind of poke fun at everybody, and so I really yeah. took the, a great opportunity to poke fun at Washington, at Nancy Pelosi as a leader of the Democratic Party and Chuck Schumer as well as Mitch McConnell and, of course, the president. It was really designed to say to the people in Washington, D.C., hey, we're out here. There are a lot of us out here. And that everything doesn't have to be Washington centric. And so th- that was the context of the conversation, of course. And you, you remember, if you read the whole thing, mm-hmm. that the other part of it was Chuck Schumer um, thinking that the Jersey Shore sunbathing with Chris Christie was south for them. To remind people not about the leadership of the party, but that the southern part of the country where I grew up and what I love, which is a place of faith, family and country, is a critically important place as well. The Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, by the way, is in an internecine war while President Trump is, is you know, there right now as people who are political junkies are looking at what the future looks like for the party. Each one of the parties is having a fight, an intramural fight about whether their party should go to the right, to the left or to the middle. I politically am a radical centrist. That's where I've always been. And I have and it's worth noting historically that there used to be a lot of us. And now they're not many of us, especially in the South. My sister Mary was a United States senator from Louisiana. I think she was the last standing Southern Democrat. And, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, that that's what the South was. So there's been a dramatic change. It's worth noting that there has been one. And if we want to win the South back again, we ought to ask why and what we should think. And the, and the South is just as a general rule more moderate than you would say the North is, is or, the, or the West Coast is. And both of the parties, if you want the, the country to be strong, need to be big tent and to let lots of different people that think a lot of different things be part of who they are. Some of that's generational, and you have a you have a lot of people arguing about whether, you know, folks who are over a certain age ought to be in office or not. But I think the last presidential race put a lie to the notion that older people can't get elected to office. I mean, Donald Trump's one of the presidents that is older in age than other people should be. Bernie Sanders on the other side was old, and so young people will do that. And I don't think that political pundits are generally right about stuff like that. You kind of should just ask the American people. They'll tell you what they think. Oh, I think political pundits were generally wrong about all of it to, 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 to take the hit for the profession. But you, something you just said was interesting to me. When I moved to D.C. in 2005, you heard people use the terminology radical centrist a lot. And it felt like political campaigns were often 
folks vying to be seen as a true centrist. And there's been a real shift in that. I mean, you go back, you have Mitt Romney coming out and saying severely conservative. You have Hillary Clinton <laughs> and Bernie Sanders in a fight over who's more progressive. There's now a, a, a more of a competition to say, no, I'm actually the true standard bearer of the ideological faith. So what is, define radical centrist for me. Well, what does I'm it mean not, to you? I'm, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm a, look, I, I told you early when you asked me how many brothers and sisters I had, I said, I was fifth and right in the middle. And I've been there my whole life. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm from the deep South. I'm not ideologically bent. I self-identify as a Democrat and believe generally in the Democratic Party's view of racial fairness and racial justice. I'm more fiscally conservative. And I just find myself in the center. I find myself identifying with really most of the people in America who are between the 20-yard line and the 20-yard line, or let's say the 40 and the 40, because it keeps getting more narrow. I don't self-identify as a, as somebody that's leading what now, it used to be called the liberal cause or the social cause, but now it's called the progressive cause, nor do I see myself on the far right of the Republican Party. And I just, very practical solutions to very difficult problems. And I, I'm, I look at the world more, not as a party person, but as an elected official, they just has to get things done. And as the mayor of a major American city, you don't really have time to have these really nice theoretical ideological fights about anything. You have to figure out a way to solve a problem. And when you're solving a problem, you're much less bent on whether you're going to describe what you're doing as right, middle, or left. You're just fixing stuff and you're getting stuff done. And most of the people that I've worked with in my life who want, you want to get in a room and argue about can come to an accommodation for solving a particular problem. So it's curious to us that Washington can't figure out how to solve any problem war and peace, immigration, tax policy, whatever it might be. That's not the experience that most Americans have and certainly not most families when they're sitting around the kitchen table and trying to figure out how to put their kids through school, keep their job or feed their family. But is that – I wonder about this because I hear mayors and I hear governors make this argument a lot and, and I think there's something to it. But on the other hand, one of the things about being a mayor of New Orleans or, or even a governor of a state is that – you end up having more agreement. You have a, a smaller constituency. You have a place that people come to for a unified set of reasons or a more unified set of reasons. And then I see these folks go from being a mayor or governor to being a senator or a member of the House or possibly in, at times even a president. And it's the same thing because they're dealing with – it turns out people do have ideologies and they do have pretty deep disagreements. When I hear that, sometimes my, my ears prick up because I wonder – if folks think it's just that, that it's just that nobody wants to wants to have common sense here, I don't think it's true. I think it's that there's actually real disagreement, and that the collision of values is really profound. I th well, I, I I take that I take what you just said to be true, and I agree with that. But it is also true that there are some institutional barriers to getting to common ground. One of them is reapportionment, and the way congressional districts are cut. It's a very weird thing. And if anybody actually looked at a congressional district, you wouldn't know that you were looking at one. You would think you were looking at an octopus or a snake or a dragon. They, they look weird about how those lines are cut. So those lines, however they cut, produce a certain kind of person. And if those lines are cut, those districts are cut that, that, that allow voters to vote for somebody that is a person that finds common purpose, they will if, if not. So that then takes you to the second thing. I think most Americans think, unfortunately, wrongly, because the rules of the Senate and the House are arcane, is that it's like a discussion you have at the kitchen table, you know, where one of your kids raises an issue and everybody at the table talks about it and then you work towards a common solution. 
they don't know about the Hastert rule, which is essentially an arcane rule that says that the Speaker of the House won't even bring up an issue for the entire body to discuss unless it meets with the approval of one quarter of the House of Representatives, which essentially says if you were raising a family that the kid that's the most unruly gets to decide what everybody talks about. Yeah, worth knowing, not even a rule. Just it's something, a, well, just something just they saying, decide to do. I think most Americans think that, you know, that, that you just kind of throw an issue on the floor of Congress and, and 435 thoughtful people decide, you know, what to do. That's exactly not what happens. And so there are these arcane rules institutionally that bake in the inability for Congress to get to a good space. And it's just weird. That's just not the way anybody really solves problems. And so I, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, demean anybody that's in Congress. I know a lot of really good, well-thinking people there. My sister was a United States senator, but it's it's not necessarily set up to solve problems the way that you would when you were um, a mayor or or a coach of a team or or things of that matter. And I think the public is frustrated by that. Yeah, that that feels to me to be right that we get. I always tell people that in Washington, everybody's so focused on the individuals. They're focused on who's going to run for president in 2020 or who's going to, you know, be be the speaker. And the stuff obviously matters. But we also have this game, this system where we've set up rules in it and we get the outcomes we've set up. I mean, we have made – there are a lot of things in life that aren't zero sum, but elections are. Well, and, I can give you three yeah. of them right now. Let's just Let's just say for – sake of argument, this mythical world that we lived in, that we don't talk about who's going to be the next president for two more years. And that we say, okay, the only thing we're going to think about on the federal level right now is how to really do immigration reform, how to really put money where it needs to be to rebuild the infrastructure of the country, and how to deal with the issue of public safety. Those are just the three issues we're going to talk about. And the war and peace issue, which is always out there, is something that we have to keep on our mind and keep in the forefront of our mind so that we don't put ourselves in an insecure you know, position. And just there, there, there is common ground on infrastructure. I think everybody in America believes that if you invest in building roads and bridges and streets and airports and things like that, that it puts people back to work and it makes us stronger. Why can't we figure out a way to do that? I think most people, if left to their own devices, if you just threw 435 congressmen and 100 senators in a room and say you're not formally meeting, really, what's the answer? They, they kind of know. So how come they can't get to that? Um, or why won't we talk about it? The same thing, of course, is – uh, is true about immigration reform. I know there are a lot of people that have a lot of passionate thoughts about that, but there is an answer, and the parameters of a deal are, are pretty much can, can already I, there. Can I can I push you on that for a second? Because I'm sure. curious. You think the, the I would have said that I would have had more confidence in that a couple of years ago, but what I see right now is that Donald Trump took over the Republican Party by recognizing that. Instead of actually having a debate over whether or not people should, you know, what to do with the 12 million undocumented who are here or whatever it might be, that he understood that people in his party were uncomfortable with the browning of America. And he has re he has moved that debate not to be about what to do with the people who are here, but his price for doing dreamers was that you cut legal immigration in the future. And so if the debate is between people who are comfortable with immigration and people want less legal immigration, not even talking here about illegal immigration, then it's really hard to find a common ground. Then you then you have a real difference in vision for the country. Well, I'll re- again, one of the thoughts is, do you actually want to move to common ground? And do you believe that diversity is a strength, not a weakness? Or do you not want to move to common ground? And do you want to win by saying, I have 50% plus one and I'm stronger than you? I think consensus is better than domination. And I, I do think that clearly there are people in the Republican Party 
uh, in citizens that feel very, very strongly, but I still contend that if you polled it and you did a lot of extensive polling, that you could probably figure out an answer that 66 to 67 percent of the people of America agree on. And if that is true, then you could govern towards that if it didn't cost you your next election. So then it gets to be more about, well, are we going to get reelected than solving the problem? And I think that's one of the things America gets frustrated with because most Americans are not paying attention to what we politicians do every day. I mean, again, everybody is really busy and they're exhausted and they're working hard and they're trying to keep up. And technology is changing things and we feel strange and we don't understand the moment that we're in. Social media is making things so more immediate and so more present and it's agitating in a way. And I'm not sure we've learned how to to comfort ourselves into how we handle all of those things happening at one time. And I think it's disconcerting and we have to learn how to live through it. And unfortunately, it, it's painful and we're all going to make a lot of mistakes and we have to give ourselves room. We have to pay, be patient, but we have to hurry uh, and we have to be more thoughtful. What do you think a compromise on immigration might look like? Well, I think the parameters are there. I think most people in America, Democrats would agree that you can't be a nation if you don't have borders. What border security looks like is obviously a big fight. I think most people think that the wall is really a chimera, that there, there are ways to secure the border without spending $25 billion on a physical wall. Uh, so that's one of them. I think most people in America think that the dreamers, you know, should be that we should be done with that. I think that most Americans look at that and say, OK, that doesn't make any sense. And by the way, you shouldn't hold them hostage. So let's kind of put that aside. Um, and then the next big question gets to be, you know, what you do with the 11 to 12 million uh, undocumented individuals that are here. Now, there, I don't think there's anybody that believes that functionally you're going to deport 11 million people. I mean, that's just a that's just a recognition that I think that we should have. Or if people really believe that, they ought to say exactly what that looks like so America can look at that and clearly say, all right, that's not practically going to happen. How would you practically do that? And so then you've got to figure out a way to 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 deal with with that issue. And I think there are a lot of really smart senators and congressmen who have really thought a lot about this and that there is a practical answer, but there's just not a political solution. And of course, that's where it gets hard. And then you had mentioned public safety, and, and having read your book, I, I'm assuming that means at least part gun control and crime. Well, it means a lot of things. It's not just, again, this is not, as soon as we talk about public safety, we talk about guns and people go to their corners. Guns are clearly a part of it. But criminal justice reform writ large, which, by the way, is something that um, when you have Senator Rand Paul and Cory Booker and Newt Gingrich and Lindsey Graham talking about, you know that there's a sense that our criminal justice system is upside down. It's essentially, we have to keep the streets of America safe, but it also has to be just and fair. And so as you think about how you work with police departments and how you give police officers the, the tools that they need to keep uh, the streets safe, that's important. But you also have to make sure that people don't choose a life of crime and that they have other opportunities. And there's a whole plethora of issues that go into that. You can't really talk about this without talking about guns. And speaking about common purpose, I think that you know 90 percent of the people in America would probably agree with this statement that not every American needs every kind of gun all the time, any time they want it. That even though you support the Second Amendment, and I do, I'm from, again, the South, people with uh, having guns is part of our history. It's part of our culture. It reminds us of going hunting with our grandfather or protecting ourselves in the homes. But most responsible gun owners understand that there have to be reasonable restrictions to make sure that we can be safe. Background checks is not something that upsets the overwhelming majority of Americans. Getting rid of bump stocks doesn't do that. Even the assault weapons ban 
and Justice Scalia, by the way, the scion of of the judicial right, said in the Heller decision that um, the Second Amendment, while it respects a person's individual right to own a gun, also is subject to reasonable rules and regulations. By the way, like every other amendment, the First Amendment included and the Fourth Amendment. And so why why can't we get there? And so the bigger question is institutionally, why, if most Americans agree on any particular thing, why Congress and the Senate doesn't really reflect that? And of course, that's one of the reasons why Americans are frustrated. So let me ask you the the question we used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you, changed your view on the world that, that you would recommend to the audience? Well, the, the, the one that Dr. King wrote in, in, in mid 60s about where do we go from here is a good book. James Lowen uh, is an author that's written a number of different books about the history that we teach in our schools and then the truth is critically important. One of them is The Lies That My Teachers Told Me, but there are a whole host of them by James Lowen. There's a beautiful new writer. Uh, well, she's been around for a long time, but people are recognizing her now named Jasmine Ward, who is from Kiln, Mississippi, that wrote a book called Salvage My Bones, uh, and then a number of other really insightful books. Uh, and then Isabel Wilkerson wrote a book called uh, In the Warmth of Other Sons about the great diaspora uh, and the people that left the South because of the sense of oppression and how much we lost because of it. Um, so those are just a couple, but there are a whole lot more out there. Mayor Mitch Landrum, thank you very much. Ezra, thank you so much. Great being with you. Thank you to Mayor Landry for being here. Uh, I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. Thank you to all of you who tune into the show for whatever reason. I don't fully understand why you give me so much of your time each week, uh, but I'm glad you do, and I'm sorry you don't have better things with which to fill your hours. <laughs> But we will be back next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.